0: Welcome to Law of Self-Defense. I am, of course, attorney Andrew Branca for Law of Self-Defense. Thank you. Thank you so much. And today we are continuing with our reading of this fantastic book, The Art of Cross-Examination, written by Francis Wellman. Uh, Wellman was an attorney in New York City in the last century. The original edition of this book was published in 1903. This particular physical edition of the book A Gift to Me When I Graduated Law School was published in 1948. So it's quite an old book. The pages are yellowed. It's a bit fragile. Uh, I mention the age of the book mostly because the language is a bit stilted. Language is roughly 100 years old. The writing style is a little stilted by modern standards. Uh, And of course, Uh, The cases and the characters referred to in the book are are from early in the last century. So always something to keep in mind. We're going to continue our reading of The Art of Cross-Examination with Chapter 3, The Matter of Cross-Examination. But before we do that, a quick word from today's sponsor. If you've ever wondered what it would be like to have a lawyer-like understanding of the many high-profile trials and legal issues we cover, well, I've got exciting news. Our very own American Law Courses offer a wide variety of law school level courses, including the foundational courses all lawyers take in their first year of law school at a fraction of the cost and time of law school and without the toxic political environment that so pervades law schools today. At American Law Courses, we simply teach traditional American law in the traditional American way to help Americans become the best-informed, most capable citizens they can be. We have a broad curriculum of courses, including criminal law, criminal procedure, evidence, property, constitutional law, and more. All courses are taught on a semester basis, roughly one live-streamed class a week for 14 weeks with an optional final exam for certification at the end. Every class is taught by a genuine legal expert in the respective subject, and because the classes are live-streamed, there's plenty of opportunity for real-time interaction and Q&A with the professor. If you can't make a particular class for some reason, no worries. Every class is also made available as a recorded playback, and you have access to that recording for a full year. We're currently in the pre-registration period for the spring 2023 semester, which starts the second week of January. And during this pre-registration period, you can save on any and all American law courses. That's a savings of over $1,000 a course. So if you'd like to learn more, now would be the time to do so. Learn more about our American law courses, access the syllabus for each course, view interviews with our professors, and much more by simply pointing your browser to AmericanLawCourses.com today. All right, folks, we are back to continue our reading of the art of cross-examination today with chapter three, the matter of cross-examination. If by experience we have learned the first lesson of our art to control our manner toward the witness, even under the most trying circumstances, it then becomes important that we should turn our attention to the matter of our cross-examination. By our manner towards a witness, we may have, in a measure, disarmed him, or at least thrown him off his guard, while his memory and conscience are being ransacked by subtle and searching questions, the scope of which will be hardly apparent to himself, but it is only with the matter of our cross-examination that we can hope to destroy him. What shall be our first mode of attack? Shall we adopt the fatal method? Of those we see around us daily in the courts and proceed to take the witness over the same story that he has already given our adversary in the absurd hope that he is going to change it in the repetition and not retell it with double effect upon the jury? Or shall we rather avoid carefully his original story, except insofar as is necessary to refer to it in order to point out its weak spots? Whatever we do, let us do it with quiet dignity, with absolute fairness to the witness, and let us frame our questions in such simple language that there can be no misunderstanding or confusion. Let us examine ourselves in the jury box so that we may see the evidence from their standpoint. We are not trying to make a reputation for ourselves with the audience as smart cross-examiners. We are thinking rather of our client and our employment by him to win the jury to his side of the case. Let us also avoid asking questions recklessly, without any definite purpose. Unskillful questions are worse than none at all, and only tend to uphold rather than to destroy the witness. All through the direct testimony of our imaginary witness, it will be remembered, we were watching his every movement and expression. Did we find an opening for our cross-examination? Did we detect the weak spot in his narrative? If so, let us waste no time, but go direct to the point. And maybe that the witness's situation in respect to the parties or the subject matter of the suit should be disclosed to the jury as one reason why his testimony has been shaded somewhat in favor of the side on which he testifies. It may be that he has a direct interest in the result of the litigation, or is to receive some indirect benefit therefrom. Or he may have some other tangible motive, which he can gently be made to disclose. Perhaps the witness is only suffering from that partnership, so fatal to fair evidence, of which oftentimes the witness himself is not conscious. It may even be that if the jury only knew the scanty means the witness has had for obtaining a correct and certain knowledge of the very facts to which he has sworn so glibly, aided by the adroit questioning of the opposing counsel, this in itself would go far toward weakening the effect of his testimony. It may appear, on the other hand, that the witness had the best possible opportunity to observe the facts he speaks of, but had not the intelligence to observe these facts correctly. Two people may witness the same occurrence and yet take away with them an entirely different impression of it. But each, when called to the witness stand, may be willing to swear to that impression as a fact. Obviously, both accounts of the same transaction cannot be true whose impressions were wrong, which had the better opportunity to see, which had the keener power of perception. All this we may very properly term the matter of our cross-examination. It is one thing to have the opportunity of observation or even the intelligence to observe correctly, but it is still another to be able to retain accurately for any length of time what we have once seen or heard and what is perhaps more difficult still to be able to describe it intelligibly. Many witnesses have seen one part of a transaction and heard about another part, and later on become confused in their own minds or perhaps only in their modes of expression as to what they have seen themselves and what they have heard from others. All witnesses are prone to exaggerate, to enlarge or minimize the facts to which they take oath. A very common type of witness met with almost daily is the man who, having witnessed some event years ago, suddenly finds that he is called to be a court witness. He immediately attempts to recall his original impressions, and gradually, as he talks with the attorney who is to examine him, he amplifies the story with new details, which he leads himself, or is led, to believe our recollections, and which he finally swears to as facts. Many people seem to fear that an I-don't-know answer will be attributed to ignorance on their part. Although perfectly honest in intention, they are apt, in consequence, to complete their story by recourse to their imagination. And few witnesses fail, at least in some part of their story, to entangle facts with their own beliefs and inferences. This subject is discussed in detail in a subsequent chapter on the fallacies of testimony. All these considerations should readily suggest a line of questions, varying with each witness examined, that will, if closely followed, be likely to separate appearance from reality and to reduce exaggerations to their proper proportions. It must further be borne in mind that the jury should not merely see the mistake, they should be made to appreciate, at the time, why and whence it arose. It is fresher, then, and scores a more lasting effect Than have left until the summing up and then drawn to the attention of the jury. The experienced examiner can usually tell after a few simple questions what line to pursue. Picture the scene in your own mind. Closely inquire into the sources of the witness's information and draw your own conclusions as to how his mistake arose and why he formed his erroneous impressions. Exhibit plainly your belief in his integrity and your desire to be fair with him and try to beguile him into being candid with you. Then, when the particular foible which has affected his testimony has once been discovered, he can easily be led to expose it to the jury. His mistakes should be drawn out often by inference rather than by direct question because all witnesses have a dread of self-contradiction. If he sees the connection between your inquiries and his own story, he will draw upon his imagination for explanations before you get the chance to point out to him the inconsistency between his later statement and his original one. It is often wise to break the effect of a witness's story by putting questions to him that will acquaint the jury at once with the fact that there is another, more probable story to be told later on, to disclose to them something of the defense, as it were. Avoid the mistake so common among the inexperienced of making much of trifling discrepancies. It has been aptly said that juries have no respect for small triumphs over a witness's self-possession or memory. Allow the loquacious witness to talk on. He will be sure to involve himself in difficulties from which he can never extricate himself. Some witnesses prove altogether too much. Encourage them and lead them by degrees into exaggerations that will conflict with the common sense of the jury. Under no circumstances put a false construction on the words of a witness. There are few faults in an advocate more fatal with the jury. If, perchance, you obtain a really favorable answer, leave it and pass quietly to some other inquiry. The inexperienced examiner, in all probability, will repeat the question with the idea of impressing the admission upon his hearers instead of reserving it for the summing up, and will attribute it to bad luck that the witness corrects his answer or modifies it in some way so that the point is lost. He is indeed a poor judge of human nature who supposes that if he exults over his success during cross-examination, he will not quickly put the witness on his guard to avoid all future favorable disclosures. David Graham, a prudent and successful cross-examiner, once said, perhaps more in jest than anything else, a lawyer should never ask a witness on cross-examination a question unless in the first place he knew what the answer would be, or in the second place he didn't care. This is someone on the principle of the lawyer who claimed that the result of most trials depended upon which side perpetrated the greater blunders in cross-examination, Certainly, no lawyer should ask a critical question unless he is reasonably sure of the answer. In a recent will contest tried in the Massachusetts courts and conducted by one of the leaders of the New England Bar, one of the witnesses to the will had been a stenographer in the office of the lawyer who drew the will. She testified, as is permitted under the law of that state, that in her opinion, the testator, when he signed his will, was perfectly sane. The appearance of the witness was extremely youthful and inexperienced and not calculated to have much, if any, weight with a court or jury. Opposing counsel, however, forgetful of the useful maxim to let well enough alone and concluding that in view of the witness's apparent employment in a law office she probably had never seen an insane person nor had an opportunity to contrast the normal with the abnormal mind, chanced it by demanding of the witness, Question, Question, have you ever in your life seen anyone who it was claimed was insane? The witness paused a moment, began to giggle, and replied, I guess I have. I've been employed in an insane asylum for the last two years as an attendant. Mr. Sergeant Ballantyne, in his quote-unquote experiences, quotes an instance in the trial of a prisoner on the charge of homicide where a once-famous English barrister had been induced by the insistence of the prisoner's attorney, although against his own judgment, to ask a question on cross-examination, the answer to which convicted his client. Upon receiving the answer, he turned to the attorney who had advised him to ask it and said, emphasizing each word, quote, Go home, cut your throat, and when you meet your client in hell, beg his pardon. Close quote. An advocate should always reserve the question he wants favorably answered until his witness is in the right humor to answer it. Sometimes he can so frame his questions as to lay himself open to an obvious retort by the witness. If the latter takes the bait and gets a good laugh on the examiner, that is the time to put the important question. While the witness is still excited and exultant at getting the better of the examiner, then the important question should be put, as if it were only a most casual inquiry. The truthful answer will come before the witness is aware of it. Sometimes, again, it is useful not even to suggest the vital question until the witness has left the witness chair and has gone halfway to his seat. Then suddenly call him back, as if you had forgotten some detail, and quickly get the answer wanted amidst his excitement and having to resume his testimony. It is a safe rule never to reply to a witness or be led into a retort unless it is a crushing one. Curran, with his jokes in one way or another, always contrived to throw the witnesses he was examining off their composure, and he took care that they seldom recovered. My lord, my lord, vociferated a peasant witness, writhing under mental excruciation when being cross-examined by Curran. I cannot answer, yon little gentleman. He is putting me in such a doldrum. A doldrum, Mr. Curran? What does the witness mean by a doldrum? exclaimed Lord Avonmere. Oh, my lord, it is a very common complaint with persons of this description. It's merely a confusion of the head arising from a corruption of the heart. A famous English barrister was once cross-examining a big, vulgar Jewish jeweler in a money-lending case and began by looking him up and down in a sleepy, dismal way and then drawled out, Well, Mr. Mosselween, and what are you? A gentleman, replied the jeweler with emphasis. Just so, just so, said Holker with a dreary yawn. But what were you before you were a gentleman? The famous reply of the artist Whistler to the Attorney General, who was cross-examining him in his celebrated suit for libel against John Ruskin, tried in England as long ago as 1878, still remains a warning to the uninitiated. Ruskin, in describing a lone exhibition at the Governor's Gallery, where considerable prominence had been given to two of Whistler's nocturnes, spoke of the ill-educated conceit of the artist, Whistler. The libel, especially complained of was the concluding paragraph of the publication where Ruskin wrote, I've seen and heard much of Cockney impudence before now, but never expected to hear a Coxcomb ask 200 guineas for flinging a pot of paint in the public's face. Close quote. It is said that Whistler thoroughly enjoyed himself at the trial and was more than a match for the attorney general. His famous reply to one of whose questions has passed into history. Can you tell me asked Sir John Holker, how long it took you to knock off that nocturne? Two days, replied Whistler. The labor of two days, then, is that for which you ask 200 guineas? No, I ask it for the knowledge of a lifetime. The verdict of the jury after a prolonged trial, which was the talk of England at the time, was in favor of the plaintiff, Whistler, for one farthing. But Ruskin took the verdict so seriously that he resigned his art professorship at Oxford on the ground that the result of the Whistler trial leaves me no further option. It is interesting to note, however, that the subsequent prices brought by some of Whistler's nocturnes proved the futility of Ruskin's criticism. For the Blue and Silver Nocturne, which was an exhibit at the trial, was ultimately purchased by the National Art Collection Fund for 2,000 guineas, was presented to the nation, and now hangs in the National Gallery. It is well sometimes in a case where you believe that the witness is reluctant to develop the whole truth so as to put questions that the answers you know will be elicited may come by way of a surprise and in light of improbability to the jury. I remember a recent incident, illustrative of this point, which occurred in a suit brought to recover the insurance on a large warehouse full of goods that had been burnt to the ground. The insurance companies had been unable to find any stock book which would show the amount of goods in stock at the time of the fire. One of the witnesses to the fire happened to be the plaintiff's bookkeeper, who on the direct examination testified to all the detail of the fire, but nothing about the books. My cross-examination was confined to these few pointed questions. I suppose you had an iron safe in your office in which you kept your books of account? Yes, sir. Did that burn up? Oh, no. Were you present when it was opened after the fire? Yes, sir. Then won't you be good enough to hand me the stock book that we may show the jury exactly what stock you had on hand at the time of the fire on which you claim loss? This was the point of the case, and the jury was not prepared for the answer which followed. I haven't the book, sir. What? You haven't the stock book? You don't mean you've lost it. It wasn't in the safe, sir. Wasn't that the proper place for it? Yes, sir. How was it that the book wasn't there? It had evidently been left out the night before the fire by mistake. Some of the jury at once drew the inference that the all-important stock book was being suppressed and refused to agree with their fellows against the insurance company. The average mind is much wiser than many suppose. Questions can be put to a witness under cross-examination in argumentative form, often with far greater effect upon the minds of the jury than of the same line of reasoning was reserved for the summing up. The juryman sees the point for himself, as if it were his own discovery and clings to it all the more tenaciously. During the cross-examination of Henry Ward Beecher in the celebrated Tilton Beecher case, and after Mr. Beecher had denied his alleged intimacy with Mr. Tilton's wife, Judge Fullerton read a passage from one of Mr. Beecher's sermons to the effect that if a person commits a great sin, the exposure of which could cause misery to others, such a person would not be justified in confessing it merely to relieve his own conscience. Judge Fullerton then looked straight into Mr. Beecher's eyes and said, Do you still consider that sound doctrine? Mr. Beecher replied, I do. The inference a juryman might draw from this question and answer would constitute a subtle argument upon that branch of the case. The entire effect of the testimony of an adverse witness can sometimes be destroyed by a pleasant little passage at arms in which he is finally held up to ridicule before the jury and all that he has previously said against you disappears in the laugh that accompanies him from the witness stand. In a Metropolitan Street Railway case, a witness, whom I had badgered rather persistently on cross-examination, finally straightened himself up in the witness chair and said, pertly, I have not come here asking you to play with me. Do you take me for Anna Held? Anna Held, folks, at the time was an uh, actress who was singing a popular song called uh, Won- Won't You Come and Play With Me? I was not thinking of Anna Held, I replied quietly. Supposing you try Ananias? Now, again, this is part of the age of this book, folks. Ananias is a biblical character, uh, laid hands on um, the man who would become St. Paul in the Bible, Um, and St. Paul was unable to see. He had, uh, like, tissue had grown over his eyes, and when Ananias touched, laid hands on St. Paul, at that time still called Saul, uh, the scales fell off his eyes, and Saul was able to see again. So this reference to Ananias is, you know, why don't you perhaps testify in a way that it will... Open the juror's eyes to what's really going on here. I continue with the book. The witness was enraged. The jury laughed. And I, who had really made nothing out of the witness up to this time, sat down. These little triumphs are, however, by no means always one-sided. Often, if the counsel gives him an opening, a clever witness will counter on him in a most humiliating fashion, certain to meet with the hearty approval of a jury and audience. At the Worcester Assizes in England, a case was being tried which involved the soundness of a horse, and a clergyman had been called as a witness who succeeded only in giving a rather confused account of the transaction. A blustering counsel on the other side, after many attempts to get at the facts upon cross-examination, blurted out, "'Pray, sir, do you know the difference between a horse and a cow?' "'I acknowledge my ignorance,' replied the clergyman. "'I hardly do know the difference between a horse and a cow, or between a bull and a bully." Only a bull, I am told, has horns, and a bully, bowing respectfully to the council, luckily for me, has none. Reference is made in a subsequent chapter to the cross-examination of a doctor in the Carlisle Harris case, where is related at length a striking example of success in this method of examination. Some very amusing instances of resultant humiliation to inexperienced cross-examiners who yield to the temptation of trying to humiliate a certain type of seemingly ignorant but naturally clever foreign witness, have occurred recently in our local courts. A fire insurance company was being sued by a merchant for the loss of his stock of caviar. The merchant, the principal witness on his own behalf, was attempting to enhance the value and quality of his merchandise as much as possible without too close an approach to downright perjury. He gave testimony to the effect that practically all the caviar in the burned warehouse was Russian astrakhan Beluga, a most excellent and expensive brand of sturgeon caviar. The cross-examiner thought he saw an opportunity to exhibit to the jury the ignorance of the witness as well as his perjury. Question. Is it not a fact that all your caviar in that warehouse are? Was what is known as whitefish caviar a poor, and inferior type of the article? Not even a true caviar? Answer. No, sir. None of it. Question. How do you know it was not? Do you even know where whitefish caviar comes from? Answer. Sure, I know. Question. Triumphantly, as if he were about to shatter the witness in the eyes of the jury, on account of his general ignorance and the lack of knowledge of his trade, where does it come from, then? Answer. Why, from a whitefish, of course. In another recent case, an Italian contractor was suing to recover for building a masonry wall for a garage, which he alleged was in all respects built in a good workmanlike manner. The claim of the defense was that the wall was poorly built and not in accord with proper masonry standards. In support of this defense, the cross-examiner was trying to show that the plaintiff's employees, Italian masons, were an inferior grade of workmen and knew little of the jobs required of them. Question. Was Domenico a good mason? Answer. Oh, yes. Very fine a mason. Question. And Giuseppe, was he a good mason? Answer. Even better. Question. How about Giovanni? Answer. Best of the three. Question. Slurringly, I suppose then you claim all Masons are good Masons. Answer, no, no, just like lawyers, some good, some rotten. (laughs) J.W. Donovan, the author of Modern Jury Trials, quotes the Brooklyn Eagles account of a trial conducted by Charles Spencer against the late Edwin James as opposing counsel involving a soldier's claim for $1,800 money loaned to a friend after the Civil War. Defendant's counsel, Mr. James, cross-examining the plaintiff. Question. You loaned him $1,800? I did, sir. When, sir? In 1866. Where did you get it? I earned it, sir. When did you earn it? During the war, sir. What was your occupation during the war? Answer. Fighting, sir. Up to this time, the issue had been much in doubt, but now the jury plainly leaned to the side of the soldier. Colonel Spencer, sensing this, closed the evidence as quickly as possible and summed up to the jury about the soldier who guarded our liberties, helped to save our nation, risked his life, etc., and won the verdict. Commenting upon the case the same day, Mr. James said to Colonel Spencer, That war speech of yours did it, and it was all the fault of my cross-examination. Otherwise, you would have known nothing about his war record. Ah, said Spencer, the mistake that you made was that you didn't find out that my client was a Confederate soldier, or you could have changed the whole verdict yourself. Remember, folks, this book is written in the context of New York City. Oftentimes, the main point in a litigation depends upon the correct version given of a conversation where only two persons are present, usually the opposing parties themselves. In a case of that kind, the direct testimony of either is often of such a character that there is no hope of obtaining a contradiction out of the mouth of the witness himself. Here, the skillful cross-examiner would ignore the testimony given by the witness-in-chief and confine his experts almost exclusively to destroying the witness if possible by attacking his integrity in connection with entirely collateral matters. There is no one at the eastern bar who employs this method as frequently or with greater skill than Max D. Stauer. Something along the lines of examination crops out in nearly every case he tries, but it would be difficult to find a more striking illustration of the complete annihilation of a witness by the above method, i.e. by merely attacking his integrity on matters entirely collateral, and which have nothing whatsoever to do with the pending issue, than in the cross-examination conducted by him in the case of The People v. Frank J. Gardner. Gardner was indicted for attempted bribery. It was charged in the indictment that while on a train en route from Albany to New York, Gardner had offered to Hugo Faulkner $3,000 in order to induce Fulker, who was then Secretary of State of New York, to vote against an anti-racing bill then pending in the legislature. Senator Fulker appeared as the chief witness for the prosecution. He testified in brief that on a certain day, when he and Gardner were riding on the same train from Albany to New York, Gardner, who knew Fulker because they had both been members of the Senate, came over to where Fulker was sitting with the secretary and asked Fulker to step into his private drawing room, which Fulker did. Gardner closed the door, leaving the two absolutely alone, whereupon Gardner explained to Fulker that he had been put in charge of a fund for the purpose of rounding up the boys in order to get a sufficient number of votes to defeat the bill, which Governor Hughes was urging for passage. witness testified that Gardner told him about a number of the members of the Senate who had accepted various sums, and that they had enough votes already to beat the bill, but that he, Gardner, was anxious to take care of some of the Brooklyn boys, and that Folker might as well get in with them. Gardner then, and there, offered Folker $3,000, which witness had, of course, spurned. Folker had subsequently become ill and had had to undergo an operation, but nevertheless, on the day when the bill came up for vote, Folker was carried into the Senate chamber and there cast the vote which passed the bill. By this vote, Folker became quite a hero in political circles, and in the ensuing autumn was elected to Congress and was a member of Congress at the time he gave the testimony referred to. The trial aroused interest largely because of a well organized effort on the part of the prosecution to destroy mayor Gaynor, then mayor of new york city the testimony was aimed principally against charles h hyde the city chamberlain under the Gaynor administration the claim being that hyde himself had collected and supplied the funds used for the purpose of bribing a large number of the members of the legislature senator foker had recited the circumstances surrounding the alleged attempted bribery in a most graphic manner there was no way of attacking his story He very carefully placed himself alone with Gardner, where no one else could hear the conversation, and he could be contradicted by no one but the defendant himself. And as he had himself become quite famous in consequence of his deciding vote, and had since been elected to Congress, and had even received public commendation from Governor Hughes, who had pronounced him the best and most worthy legislator that New York had had in many decades he naturally assumed that his word would be believed as against the witness under indictment. This was particularly likely in view of the fact that the district attorney had assured the court that other senators would be called to testify to offers made to them by the same defendant, an offer to prove that Gardner had hired a suite of rooms in Albany during the pendency of the bill, though his only business there was lobbying with relation to this bill. The details of the cross-examination which followed would best be given in Mr. Stower's own language. Quote, I first traced Folker's life up to the time that he was testifying, of course, in a skeleton sort of way. He was born in Germany, came to this country when he was about 14, had reached the gymnasium, was very proficient in German. His parents settled in Brooklyn, and he always resided in Brooklyn. He always voted in Brooklyn. He was admitted to the bar in the second department. He had obtained his education by attending night school He never attended any university. To make himself eligible for admission to the bar, he had to pass the regent's examination. It was the knowledge that he had acquired by attending at night school that enabled him to pass the regent's examination. He obtained the required points and was successful in the examination. The only language that he had ever studied outside of English was German. Being proficient in German, he had found the examination in German very simple, He was sure that he took an examination in German at the time that he passed his regent's examination. He could not remember where he took his regent's examinations. He did not know what kind of building it was or where it was located, what floor of the building it was on. He could not remember the names of the examiners, nor, so far as he could recall, was there anyone in the room with whom he had any acquaintance. He could not remember whether he took his regent's examinations in Manhattan or in Brooklyn. He did not remember by what means it was that his regent's certificate was delivered to him. He knew no other person by the same name as his. In fact, he had never heard of any person of that name. When informed by means of questions that his examination papers had disappeared from the place where they should be on file in Albany, he knew no reason for their disappearance and was certain that he could not account for it in any way. He certainly had had nothing to do with their disappearance. He was sure that he had taken the examinations himself and had not engaged someone else to pass them for him. He did not remember whether or not he signed a receipt for his regent certificate when it was delivered. On being shown the receipt that was on file for that certificate, he said that the letters which spelled the name Hugo Faulkner were not written by him. The address to which the certificate was delivered was at 215 Henry Street in the borough of Manhattan. He never had lived there and he could assign no reason why his certificate should have been delivered at that address. He had no recollection of ever having authorized anybody to receipt for his certificate. He could not remember exactly what subjects he had passed his examinations in, but he supposed that it was English and German and arithmetic, reading, writing, and spelling. He was sure that he never took a French examination. He never had studied French, or learned to read French, or to translate French, or to speak French. When shown the card on file with the Board of Regents indicating that Hugo Falker had passed his French examination with 100%, he could not account for it. When shown the French examination paper of that period, he admitted that he could not have answered a single question on that paper. He passed an examination in logarithms and advanced algebra with upwards of 95%. He admitted that he had never studied logarithms nor advanced algebra. He could not explain how it was that the Board of Regents made such a terrible mistake as to give him these high percentages in subjects in which he did not pass an examination. Investigation made of Falker's past had developed the following facts. Falker had employed a young student, a very poor boy, who lived at 215 Henry Street, who attended the College of the City of New York, and was the best student in his class at that period. The only days upon which this boy was absent from the City College during that year were the days upon which Hugo Falker attended the regent's examinations. The receipt for the regent's certificate was signed, Hugo Falker, in the handwriting of this boy. At the very time when Falker was testifying, this boy was an inmate of the tombs, that's a prison, folks, and had been brought to court on a subpoena. He had pleaded guilty in the court of special sessions to having passed civil service examinations for and on behalf of other Persons, and when Falker was asked whether he knew this boy, he testified that he did not recall. But when the boy was asked to stand up, then his recollection improved, and he recognized the boy. Then everything came back to him about 215 Henry Street that he had theretofore forgotten, and he recalled that he had engaged this boy to give him instruction to enable him to pass his regent's examinations, and that during that period he had actually resided for several days with that boy, and that was how it came about that the regent's certificate was delivered at that boy's address. He could not account for the fact that although all the examination papers for admission to the bar of every applicant who was examined at the same time when Hugo Faulkner was examined were still in Albany in their proper place, and the examination papers of Hugo Faulkner were not there, Even though he had taken lessons from this boy at 215 Henry Street, he still admitted he had never learned French nor logarithms, although he was not so certain about advanced algebra. He could not tell anything that advanced algebra dealt with, nor had he any idea what logarithms were part of the science of mathematics or whether they dealt with minerals. He admitted that he received $2,500 from a man who had a bill pending in the legislature providing for the sprinkling of streets and that he, Falker, had voted in favor of this bill in which this man was very much interested, and the man actually later received the contract for the sprinkling of the streets. Falker's explanation of the receipt of that check was that the man sent it to him as a campaign contribution. It was, of course, true that the man did not live in Brooklyn, where Falker was a candidate, nor could he distinctly remember that he had ever met the man, but he accepted campaign contributions, no matter from whom they came, without inquiry, because that was the custom among members of the legislature. It was the fact that he had a bank balance at one time of upwards of $20,000, and that was just about the period when the racing bill was pending. He could not tell from what clients he had received that money, but he was positive that he had earned it in his practice, although he could not recall that he had tried a single case or that there was any transaction in which he was retained in which any fee was paid in excess of $250. When Folker left the witness stand, he was completely destroyed so far as his testimony was concerned, and during much of the time when he was under cross-examination, the jury laughed at many of his answers. His discomfort was so great that also it was cold outside. He perspired so much that I personally loaned him two handkerchiefs during the time when he was on the witness stand. Although a member of Congress at the time when he was testifying and less than one half of his term had been served, Falker left the courtroom at the conclusion of his cross-examination and has never been seen or heard from since. During the whole of his cross-examination, he was asked nothing about the conversation on the train. As a matter of fact, I do not believe that the jury recalled that there was any conversation on the train. Gardner was acquitted after the jury had been out less than 20 minutes. Henry E. Lazarus, a prominent merchant in the city, that would be New York City folks, was indicted a few years ago by the federal grand jury, charged with the offense of bribing a United States officer in violation of the Sabotage Act, but was honorably acquitted by a jury after a 30-minute deliberation. It was during the height of the war, and Mr. Lazarus was a very large manufacturer of rubber coats and had manufactured hundreds of thousands for the government under contract. The government, for its protection, employed large numbers of inspectors, and in the heat and excitement of war times these inspectors occasionally tried to make good. One of these efforts resulted in the indictment of Lazarus. The chief witness against Lazarus was Charles L. Fuller, supervising inspector attached to the depot quartermaster's office in New York City. Fuller testified that Lazarus gave money to him to influence him in regard to his general duties as an inspector and to overlook the fact that Lazarus was manufacturing defective coats and thereby violating the Sabotage Act. Martin W. Littleton acted as chief counsel for the defense and was fully appreciative of Mr. Lazarus's high character and of his conscientious discharge of his duties in the manufacture of material for the government. He was also well-informed as to the general character and history of Fuller. After Fuller testified in chief, he was first questioned closely as to the time when he became an employee of the government counsel knowing that he was required to make and sign and swear to an application as to his prior work experience. A messenger had been sent to the government files to get the original of this application signed by the witness and came at the court with the document in his hand, just as counsel was putting the following question. Did you sign such an application? I did, sir. Did you swear to it? No, I did not swear to it. I show you your name signed on the bottom of this document and ask if you signed that. Yes, sir. Do you see it is sworn to? I had forgotten that. You see there's a seal on it? I had forgotten that also. This application appears to be subscribed on the 24th of May, 1918, by Charles Lawrence Fuller. It must be right if I have sworn to it on that date. Do you remember in May 1918 that you signed and swore to this application? That is so. I must have sworn to it, sir. Do you remember it? Let me look at it, and and I can probably refresh my memory. Look at the signature. Does that help you? That is my signature. You said that. Do you remember in May 1918 you signed and swore to this? Well, the date is there. Do you know that? Yes, sir. I I must have sworn to it. I, I don't remember the date. Don't you remember you signed your name, Charles Lawrence Fuller, there? I did, sir. And you swore to this paper and signed it? That date is correct there. Yes, sir. Don't you remember you swore to it the date you signed it? I swore to it. Was your name Fuller? Yes, sir. Has your name always been Fuller? No, sir. What was your name? The witness protested against any further inquiry along that line, but counsel was permitted to show that his name at one time was Finkler and that he changed his name back and forth from Finkler to Fuller. Counsel then proceeded to bring the witness down to the actual oath he had taken in his application. Now, Mr. Fuller, in your application you made to the government on which I showed you your signature and affidavit, you attached your picture, did you not? Yes, sir. And you stated in your application you were born in Atlanta, Georgia. Did you not? Yes, sir. You were asked when you sought this position, these questions. When employed, the years and the months. And you wrote in February 1897 to August 1917, number of years 20. Where employed? Brooklyn. Name of employer? Vulcan Proofing Company. Amount of salary? $37.50 a week. Also superintendent in the rubber and compound room. You wrote that, didn't you? Yes, sir. And you swore to that, didn't you? Yes, sir. Now, were you employed from February 1897 to August 1917, 20 years with the Vulcan Proofing Company? No, sir. That was not true, was it? No, sir. And had you been assistant superintendent of the rubber and compound room? No, sir. That was false, wasn't it? Yes, sir. You wrote, and through my experience as chief inspector of the rubber and slicker division, that was false, wasn't it? Yes, sir. You knew it was false, didn't you? Yes, sir. And you knew you were swearing to a falsehood when you swore to it? Yes, sir. And you swore to it intentionally? Yes, sir. And you knew you were committing perjury when you swore to it? I did not look at it in that light. Didn't you know you were committing perjury by swearing, and pretending you had been 20 years in this business? Yes, sir. And you are swearing now, aren't you? Yes, sir. In a matter in which a man's liberty is involved? Yes, sir. And you know that the jury is to be called upon to consider whether you are worthy of belief or not, don't you? Yes, sir. When you swore to this falsehood deliberately and wrote it in your handwriting and knew it was false, you swore to it intentionally and you knew that you were committing perjury, didn't you? I did not look at at it in that light. Well, now, when you know you are possibly swearing away the liberty of a citizen of this community, do you look at it in the same light? Yes, sir, I do. Mr. Littleton then uncovered the fact that the witness, instead of having been 20 years superintendent of a rubber room with the Vulcan Proofing Company, as he had sworn in his own handwriting, was a stag entertainer in questionable houses, was a barker at a Coney Island show, was an advance agent of a cheap roadshow, and had been published in the papers having drawn checks that were worthless. The witness fully admitted all of the details of his 20 years of questionable transactions, The result was his utter collapse so far as his credibility was concerned and the government's case collapsed with him. The point of the cross-examination and the design of the cross-examiner was to get the witness at the outset of his cross-examination in a position from which he could not possibly extricate himself by confronting him with this document written in his own handwriting in which he would be obliged to admit that he had sworn falsely. The witness, having been thoroughly subjugated by this process, would then, as he actually did, confess to twenty years of gadding about in questionable employment under different names and thus completely destroy himself as a reliable witness in the eyes of the jury. To an absurd liar who burst out in a witness box, My lord, you may believe me or not, but I have stated not a word that is false, or I have been wedded to the truth from infancy. Very likely, replied Mr. Justice Mall, who probably was the greatest wit on the English bench, but the question is, how long have you been a widower? This same judge, while examining a little girl who was about to give testimony as a witness in order to determine whether or not she understood the nature of an oath before allowing her to be sworn, said, do you know what an oath is, my child? Yes, sir, I am obliged to tell the truth. And if you do always tell the truth, where will you go when you die? Up to heaven, sir. And what will become of you if you tell lies? I shall go down to the naughty place, sir. Are you quite sure of that? Yes, sir. Quite sure. Let her be sworn, said Justice Small. It's quite clear she knows a great deal more than I do. (laughs) It may not be uninteresting to record in this connection one or two cases illustrative of matter that is valuable in cross-examination and personal damage suits where my sole object was to reduce the amount of the jury's verdict and to puncture the pitiful tale of suffering told by the plaintiff in such cases. A New York commission merchant named Metz, 66 years of age, was riding in a Columbus Avenue open car, and as the car neared the curve at 53rd Street and 7th Avenue, and while he was in the act of closing an open window in the front of the car at the request of an old lady passenger, the car gave a sudden violent lurch, And he was thrown into the street, receiving injuries from which, at the time of trial, he had suffered for three years. Counsel for the plaintiff went into his client's suffering in great detail. Plaintiff had had concussion of the brain, loss of memory, bladder difficulties, a broken leg, nervous prostration, constant pain in his back, and the attempt to alleviate the pain attendant upon all these difficulties was gone into with great detail. To cap all, the attending physician had testified that the reasonable value of his professional services was the modest sum of $2,500. This would have been an early 1900s, dollars, folks. Before beginning my cross-examination, I had made a critical examination of the doctor's face and bearing in the witness chair and had concluded that if pleasantly handled, he could be made to testify pretty nearly to the truth, whatever it might be. I concluded to spar for an opening, and it came within the first half-dozen questions. Counsel, what medical name, doctor, would you give to the plaintiff's present ailment? Doctor, he has what is known as traumatic neurosis. Counsel, neurosis, doctor? That means, does it not, the habit, or disease, as you may call it, of making much of ailments that an ordinary healthy man would pass by is of no account? Doctor, doctor. That is right, sir. Counsel. I hope you haven't got this disease, doctor, have you? Doctor. Not that I'm aware of, sir. Counsel. Then we ought to be able to get a very fair statement from you of this man's troubles, ought we not? Doctor. I I hope so, sir. The opening had been found. The witness was already flattered into agreeing with all suggestions and warned against exaggeration. Counsel. Let us take up the bladder trouble first. Do not practically all men who have reached the age of 66 have troubles of one kind or another that result in more or less irritation of the bladder? Doctor. Yes, that that is very common with old men. Counsel. You said Mr. Metz was deaf in one ear. I noticed that he seemed to hear the questions asked him in court particularly well. Did you notice that? Doctor. Yes, I did. Counsel. Counsel. At the age of 66, are not the majority of men gradually failing in their hearing? Doctor. Yes, sir, frequently. Counsel. Frankly, doctor, don't you think this man hears remarkably well for his age, leaving out the deaf ear altogether? Doctor. I think he does. Counsel. Keeping the ball rolling. I don't think you have even the first symptoms of this traumatic microsis, doctor. The doctor is pleased. I haven't got it at all. Counsel, you said Mr. Metz had had concussion of the brain. Has not every boy who has fallen over backward when skating on the ice and struck his head also had what you physicians would call concussion of the brain? Doctor, yes, sir. Counsel, but I I understood you to say that this plaintiff has had, in addition, hemorrhages of the brain. Do you mean to tell us that he could have had hemorrhages of the brain and be alive today? Well, they were microscopic hemorrhages. Counsel, counsel. That is to say, one would have to take a microscope to find them. Uh, That's right. Counsel, you do not mean us to understand, doctor, that you have not cured him of these microscopic hemorrhages. Doctor, oh, I, I have cured him. That's right. Counsel, you certainly were competent to set his broken leg or you wouldn't have attempted it. Did you get a good union? Doctor, yes, he's got a good, strong, healthy leg. Counsel, having elicited by the smiling method, all the required admission suddenly changed his whole bearing toward the witness and continued pointedly. Counsel, and you said that $2,500 would be a fair and reasonable charge for your services. It is three years since Mr. Metz was injured. Have you sent him a bill? Doctor, yes, sir, I have. Counsel, let me see it. Turning to plaintiff's counsel, will either of you let me have the bill? Doctor, I haven't it, sir. Counsel. Astonished. What was the amount of it? Doctor. $1,000. Counsel. Savagely. Why do you charge the railroad company two and a half times as much as you charge the patient himself? Doctor. Embarrassed at the sudden change on part of counsel. You asked me what my services were worth. Counsel. Didn't you charge your patient the full worth of your services? No answer. Counsel. Quickly. How much have you been paid on your bill, on your oath? Doctor, he paid me $100 at one time, that is two years ago, and at two different times since he has paid me $30. Counsel, and he is a rich commission merchant downtown. And with something between a sneer and a laugh, counsel sat down. Another amusing incident leading to the exposure of a manifest fraud occurred in another of the many damage suits brought against the Metropolitan Street Railway and growing out of a collision between two of the company's electric cars. The plaintiff, a laboring man, had been thrown to the street pavement from the platform of the car by the force of the collision and had dislocated his shoulder. He had testified in his own behalf that he had been permanently injured insofar as he had not been able to follow his usual employment for the reason that he could not raise his arm above a point parallel with his shoulder. Upon cross-examination while acting for the railroad, I asked the witness a few sympathetic questions about his sufferings, and upon getting on a friendly basis with him, suggested that he be good enough to show the jury the extreme limit to which he could raise his arm since the accident. The plaintiff slowly and with considerable difficulty raised his arm to the parallel of his shoulder. Now, I said, using the same arm, show the jury how high you could get it up before the accident was the next quiet suggestion, whereupon the witness extended his arm to the full height above his head amid peals of laughter from the court and jury. In the case of murder, to which the defense of insanity was set up, a medical witness called on behalf of the accused, swore that in his opinion, the accused at the time he killed the deceased was affected with a homicidal mania and urged to the act by an irresistible impulse The judge, not satisfied with this, first put the witness some questions on other subjects and then asked, do you think the accused would have acted as he did if a policeman had been present? To which the witness at once answered in the negative. Thereupon, the judge remarked, well, your definition of an irresistible impulse must then be an impulse irresistible at all times, except when a police officer is present. And that's it for chapter three of The Art of Cross-Examination by Francis Wellman. We'll continue, of course, in the next show with our reading of chapter four until then folks remember if you carry a gun so you're hard to kill that's why i carry a gun so i'm hard to kill my family is hard to kill then you also owe it to yourself and your family to make sure you know the law so you're hard to convict until next time i remain attorney andrew branker for law of self-defense stay safe if you've ever wondered what it would be like to have a lawyer-like understanding of the many high-profile trials and legal issues we cover well i've got exciting news Our very own American Law Courses offer a wide variety of law school level courses, including the foundational courses all lawyers take in their first year of law school at a fraction of the cost and time of law school and without the toxic political environment that so pervades law schools today at american law courses we simply teach traditional american law in the traditional american way to help americans become the best informed most capable citizens they can be we have a broad curriculum of courses including criminal law criminal procedure evidence property constitutional law and more all courses are taught on a semester basis roughly one live streamed class a week for 14 weeks with an optional final exam for certification at the end Every class is taught by a genuine legal expert in the respective subject, and because the classes are live-streamed, there's plenty of opportunity for real-time interaction and Q&A with the professor. If you can't make a particular class for some reason, no worries. Every class is also made available as a recorded playback, and you have access to that recording for a full year. We're currently in the pre-registration period for the spring 2023 semester, which starts the second week of January. And during this pre-registration period, you can save 50% on any and all American law courses. That's a savings of over $1,000 a course. So if you'd like to learn more, now would be the time to do so. Learn more about our American law courses access the syllabus for each course, view interviews with our professors, and much more by simply pointing your browser to AmericanLawCourses.com today.